Adam Valen Levinson is the author of the non-fiction novel The Abu Dhabi Bar Mitzvah, dubbed Eat, Pray, Laugh by the New York Times, but not without its controversy. National Book Critics Circle Award winner for poetry, Morgan Parker, called him an incredibly generous, compassionate and thorough writer who gorgeously blends lyricism with reportage and philosophy with confession. Adam has written, filmed and photographed for The Al Jazeera, The Paris Review, Haaretz, News Zerker Zudung and Vice and also done college stints at the meccas of real fake news, namely The Colbert Report and The Onion. He holds an MFA in creative non-fiction from Groucho College and is currently in the latter stages of his PhD at Yale University where he travels globally to investigate new stand-up comedy scenes as a fellow at the Center for Cultural Sociology. the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today and I'm really excited to know about the work that you've been doing. Uh, so to get us started, I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself, about your academic background and about your interest in humor, more specifically as an area of research. Oh wow. Um, well, hi. Uh, nice to see you, even though our, our time zones are somehow half an hour apart, which is shocking to me. This is, this is part of what um, academia, I think this is part of the best part of academia is learning. Uh, paradigm shifting things like there can be time zones that are half an hour apart. Um, went to undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to study there. I think I always basically had this sort of omnivorous sense of things that I was curious in. I was like, ah, everything's cool. I took a lot of intro classes, intro anthro class about like how humanity started, an intro linguistics class because I always cared about languages and then political science. I ended up doing that. Um, and then uh, I moved to the Middle East um, after college and I lived there for a couple of years um, in Abu Dhabi, sort of traveling around to different places while the Arab Spring was happening. Also, just like, uh, let me learn about stuff. Like, I don't know what exactly, but I want to find stuff out. Um, and then I've been moving around a lot uh, since then. Um, I started this program in the sociology department at Yale uh, in 2016. And to, to me, this idea of humor was always like, if you could understand the humor of a group, of a place, of a linguistic group, of a family, of one person, that's like the highest level of communication you ever get. That's the fluency, that's the most fluent you could ever be. Like you go on a first date, you make a good joke, you're in, you know, that's a really good start. Or I speak pretty good French. Okay. But if I watch French stand up, I'm pretty lost. So there's this idea that was like, all right, how can we somehow use humor as this key to understanding different cultures? But that fits a TV show a lot better than it does sort of an academic project. Cause it's like, I just, same question, but let's go everywhere and find out, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have uh, a, why is this happening? It's just a, what can we learn? Um, and so that has become this question about why stand-up, why stand-up comedy is exploding around the world um, and why we're seeing stand-up scenes that really look like they do everywhere, popping up, you know, everywhere from smaller cities in Ukraine to Shanghai, where I largely started doing comedy, to Pakistan, where I was last week, 
um, here in Nairobi this week, which is very new, all over the place. And it's like, okay, so why is this art form spreading just as fast as, you know, I don't think anything since hip hop and maybe even more. Why? And then because I'm, you know, uh, obnoxious and grandiose, you know, like what can that tell us in a much broader sense about, about something even bigger? It's not just about comedy. It's like, why is this? Why are we all, why, why are we gravitating towards this? So that's a lot. How's, how does that sound? Well, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, humor is something that's so interesting, right? Because I think, as you mentioned, it's something that pulls communities and societies together. But at the same time, I think it is also a cause of a lot of divide, right? Like, you know, take a lot of offensive jokes, take dark humor, take community specific jokes that, you know, are specifically targeted towards and against certain communities. And then, you know, you have a lot of these jokes which are directed towards oneself, right? And I think like a lot of people say, take this in good humor and, and all of that. But that's not always possible. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just like to know, um, it's like quite a broad question, but I just like to know your thoughts on like the different types of humor that there are and why some are more offensive than others and like. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I always, I generally just think about what's the, what are the most recent things that happened and not necessarily the best examples, but um, I mean, you're definitely right that division is, almost always part and parcel with unity. If you're going to unite, there is some part of that that automatically creates a division. The earth is, you know, has a gravitational pull, but it needs that ozone keeps a lot of stuff out and it's just space out there. I don't know if that's a great metaphor, but it sort of made sense at the time. Um, thinking about what offends people. So last night I was at a, a show in um, a, a really affluent part of Nairobi. And um, I was, it was a slightly different group than the night before. And I was kind of trying to understand, you know, what, what people were doing there and who was coming and stuff like that. Um, it was a, they still had room for other people. So I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll get on stage also just because that sort of, it's a it's a weird way to do research but you know it's like if i can also then i'll you know then i'll do experiments that, that way too and there were a number of people who made jokes that had gayness as a topic and this is and this is like a huge thing to think about it's like okay what what is the subject of the joke what is the content are we talking about apples are we talking about homosexuality are we talking about the holocaust are we talking about men and women are we talking about nothing and then it's like well what's that think about just take it out of the joke in context what's the point of it so this guy was telling a joke about how i really you, know, you should never repeat a comedian's joke so i'll just try and tell you like the the facts of the case um it's really a cardinal sin you go there's like a weird comedian hell then you just get so i won't um and <laughs> the joke was about how when obama was coming to visit kenya there was this weird rumor that when obama came he was going to turn everyone gay wow okay <laughs> this wasn't a joke this was a thing this was like an actual thought that circulated in parts of the country and so he's just mentioning that and then and then mocking that way of thinking 
And there's a couple other people that had jokes that were also about that, that were, that were, that were touching on the homophobia of the society that where you're currently existing. And after the show, I'm sitting around with the, with the host who, amazing guy, uh, amazing guy named Brian. Um, and he, uh, he was sitting there, we were talking about uh, the history of, of comedy in, in Kenya and how he'd grown out of this show that was very stereotypical, just like ethnic stereotypes, tribal stereotypes, men are like this and women are like that, and how he'd wanted to do something different. As we're talking about that, this, uh, a woman comes over and, um, and she says, you know, I want you to know uh, you were referring to me as a he all night. She goes, I'm a, I'm a woman. She'd been sitting with her uh, girlfriend and he just hadn't mentioned. I, I thought when I saw it, I just figured, oh, he just, you know, you didn't even need to mention that they were two women as a couple. And I was like, that's cool. It's progressive. I understand we're in a wealthy area, but it's great. He really didn't see. The guy actually does have terrible vision. Fair. But they were like, she was not only she's, she was offended by that. And I asked her, I was like, oh, so how did, what did you think about the, the jokes about homophobic uh, jokes about being gay and she goes they were all wrong she goes they were all wrong and then her girlfriend came and said we gotta go we gotta go she was i think it was the kind of thing that was like stop picking fights but to me i wish we could have continued that conversation because the the message no part of the message of any of those jokes as i was reading them not as a queer person, but as I was understanding them, was this is mocking people that are homophobic. That's the, the clear message of all these jokes. But when you touch on the topic, sometimes just the topic, people are like, I'm out. Mm -mm, we don't touch that. I make Holocaust jokes kind of a lot. And for some people, it's like, no, no, this, the, don't touch the topic. And there are different reasons why that might be true, but a lot of the time it's because we're, we have a tough time separating the subject from the message. I guess you would know that being an advertising subject line could be one thing, the message totally separate, put them together, play with them, whatever. But yeah. um, I think that's definitely a big part of offense now is that we, we have certain words we just go, no, I'm not going to have a conversation that involves that or certain ideas become so charged, so charged that it's, it's very hard to touch with the, the comedy stick. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, in fact, I think this reminds me of a conversation I was having the other day with my dad and my sister and, and, and another very similar conversation I was having with a friend where, you know, I think the underlying thread, right, was that, you know, you do have certain societies, certain communities, certain groups which have just for long been either marginalized or made fun of or denied of their rights, right? Like you have, you know, men, LGBTQ people, you know, um, the blacks, for instance, you know, in India, I've got a lot of like these ethnic groups, right? And in fact, I think, you know, especially like the Indian stand-up comedy scene, you have a lot of these comedians, right, who, you know, do make fun of these people, who do poke fun of these people. And, um, you know, and I mean, they do have an audience, right, you know, who enjoys and consumes, you know, like this form of entertainment, right, conversation that I was having along with my dad and, and my sister, right, like my dad and I, we came from the point of view that, you know, 
you can have a joke, but you can still have a liberal or like a forward looking sort of idea, right? For example, I can make a joke about women being a man, but I can still, you know, be a feminist, right? And my sister mm. said, no, if you find the joke funny, it, you know, inherently means that you are complying to the system, right? So I just like to you know your thoughts, you know, is it possible to really enjoy and consume humor and even make those kind of jokes? if you are a feminist or a liberal or a progressive in that sense or, uh, you know, or does like this, like binary, like have to exist. I think I just like to know your thoughts and any experiences you may have had. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, my first thought is that uh, I don't think binaries are real in any case ever about anything. So that would, I mean, it, it's a, Yes, that does apply in specific cases, and it also is an excuse for why um, I will never give a straight answer about anything. Um, look, I think if a joke really, really is where you can tell the message is racist or is uh, misogynist, if the joke is like women are always like nagging, right? Like women just always are making noises when they should shut up. And, you, you know, if some part of you is like, it's so true you should maybe think about, okay, well, why, why, why is that funny to me? You should maybe think about that, interrogate yourself. Okay. But that's often not what's really happening. I mean, that is, that is the case. And a lot of these new comedy scenes or in a lot of the, the sort of old school scenes that are now morphing into something else or that are still popular for some groups. But a lot of what's happening now is those things are sort of being turned on their head and the idea still lingers of like, well, you are, you are talking about that subject. And so that's offensive. We have to think about what's the, what's the point. Somebody came up to me a couple, a couple of days ago, two, two nights ago. Um, I was doing jokes about the joke basically goes something like, you know, are the Jews in the crowd and there's silence. And I go, you know, I've asked that in a room full of, you know, in Israel in a room full of Jews and, uh, and there's silence because Jews know if anybody asks that it's not going to be good. And, and then it goes, and I go into a little bit of a Holocausty joke or whatever. Or I should say somebody came up to me afterwards. She's young. She went to Catholic school, uh, like many people in Kenya. She said, I did not know if I was allowed to laugh at that. She goes, I was so, she was like, I, she just looked like, I mean, she'd been drinking, but she looked very, like, really torn about this. And, um, and I was saying, well, first of all, you know, if a comedian says something, you can definitely laugh at it. It's kind of like what we're, it's kind of what we're trying to do. But also think about what was the point of the joke? The point of the joke was that, like, sometimes it's dangerous to say that you're Jewish that's it. There's nothing, I'm not making, there's, that's it. So it's hard to, it's hard to, I think, to respond to humor and to have that thought at the same time. Um, but, but when we're trying to break out of these absolutes of like, if you laugh at this, then you're bad and you're evil. And if you feel this way, then you're terrible. And if you, right, we got to get rid of all of those kinds of ways of thinking. Um, especially with something, and this is why I think of humor as being this highest level of communication possible, the highest level of fluency, is that at some level, it's ineffable. At some level, we, we, we can't actually describe what's actually happening. We can get really close. Mary Douglas, anthropologist, 
amazing anthropologist. She had this line, something to do with how when you find a joke funny, the, uh, the physical, the social, the psychological are snapping into alignment. And, and she says, in the subjective recognition of truth. If you're finding it funny, all these things are coming together. And some part of you is like, well, that's something true about that. But laughing at it, laughing at something being true doesn't mean you support it. Like, I love suicide jokes. I love the darkness. I love the, I mean, a good, you know, you can't just, I mean, every joke, you can't just say words and have them be funny, but a, but a well-crafted joke with that as a subject or a well-crafted joke that asks that, that deals with like, Hey man, what if all meanings are constructed? What, what if everything is effectively arbitrary? That's an existentially really damaging question to ask a lot of people, but it, for me, it's like, that seems true. Seems true enough. I, the things are snapping into alignment for me, you know? Um, I don't know if that's answering your question or not, but, but, uh, but if we have to fall back on something, if that binaries don't exist, everything is spectra and, um, and you should more or less be allowed to laugh at everything that you want. So long as you're willing to have a conversation after where nobody really yells at you or you just like kind of talking or hopefully drinking. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. In fact, you know, I think, um, to the point about suicide jokes and dark humor, I remember there are a lot of jokes I come across on Reddit, which are just so dark. Like I want to share it with somebody, but I hope that it's going to be taken in the right spirit. Like, I remember you don't know. Joke. Yeah, I remember this one um, like comic strip I saw where there was this one girl and there was her mom. And uh, the girl asked her mom, hey, let's go visit grandma this weekend. And the mom was like, okay. And the next comic strip, like they literally go and hang themselves because like the grandma's dead. And, you know, I was so, I was just so taken aback, but then at the same time, I was like, but this is so funny at the same time. So I didn't yeah. like, know like what to do with it. Right. So, you know, behind the darkness and behind how disturbing it is, some part of me is also like, but there is, you know, like these people are onto something, right? Like it is funny. So yeah. So, I just, um, so yeah, I mean, again, this isn't a question per se, but you know, what are the different layers that sort of go on behind such you know complicated forms of humor right maybe it's not that complicated at all you know but but like when you have something that is dark especially you know to this level yeah. like what really goes on so if i were to get really technical there are these kind of three existing i want to say schools but not really these kind of families of of humor theory um, there is an international society of humor scholars, of which I'm happy to be a part, which sounds a bit like a joke in itself, but it's wonderful people all around the world. And there's these three major, one of them that is this linguistic basis for all that is called, um, is the incongruity theory, the idea that there are these kind of overlapping scripts happening at the same time. And that might be as simple as, as this joke that's like, uh, I constantly use as an example. It's like a guy goes over to a, a doctor's house and the doctor's wife answers. And the man says, well, is the doctor in? And the woman says, no, come in. Aha, he's cheating with the doctor's wife. 
at first the script is like he's going to visit the doctor and then it's like oh no he's so incongruity between like what can happen at the little pivot point or i think in the case of your joke there's this incongruity between like how severely someone is responding to something that seems small but their reaction is just like over the top and i think that's a kind of incongruity as well the overreaction is fine and that's oversimplified but whatever that's one kind of thing another theory um uh is uh i think of it as this kind of like hydraulics it just has to do with like you're releasing a pressure the psychoanalytic theory, sort of Freudian thing of just, you know, you're touching on this thing, it's a taboo, and oh, wow, it feels like such a release to get that. And that's clearly true in a lot of places. It's true with your joke, the idea of even just being like touching on something really dark, and you're like, it's fun to be able to think about that for a second. Um, you know, in new scenes in Pakistan, for example, they would have mostly what they would have is dirty shows. And there'd be a lot of people saying, you know, I won't say these words in Urdu just in case, you know, you listen to it or whatever. But like, you know, it's just a lot of like curse words and sex jokes. And okay, that bubbles up psychologically. It's really... And the other one has to do with superiority of that you make a joke and that people in hearing the joke have some sense of being superior to something and so are uh reinforced is the wrong word are kind of strengthened you know in feeling that and that's i think that's a big part of why a comic doing self-deprecating jokes is really helpful to the audience because then the audience can go well at least i'm better than that you know or a king having a court jester, just being an idiot. And the king can be like, well, I was relatively insecure about losing our territories in Gaul or whatever. But like, that guy looks like an idiot. So I, know, I guess I'm okay. So you have all those parts. And I think they're much more. I think a lot of times people say, oh, this one isn't real. We don't really believe that. I think all of these things work in concert. Um, and, and, um, and the idea of incongruity as well is, is really complex and again, can apply on that linguistic level, could also imply, apply on this like really huge scale of just like, you know, narratives that you live by. Um, but uh, those, are, those are different. I think people want different, some people just want the superiority kind of joke. That's what's happening here. There's this show called The Churchill Show. Uh, it's, it's all in Swahili, but there's a lot of just ethnic jokes and, and gender jokes, as I was, as I was pointing out. And I, and I'm, just, I'm really just thinking of the examples of just like, this is, this is what this week has been for me, but there's so, so many more. Um, and that's just this superiority thing, you know, being hit over and over and over and over again. Of course, there are other elements, but if you were to kind of map out the proportions, there would be a lot of that. Maybe as opposed to these like, you know, really good dark joke. And somebody came up to me after the show uh, yesterday and was like, thank you for being quite that dark. Like, I don't normally get to hear Holocaust jokes. <laughs> and I'm like, you're welcome. That is the service I aim to provide. I, I get on planes. I come I come to your country and I, I tell it, I tell a joke about, about the Holocaust. And if, and so in that case, you get this real psychological thing. Um, so it's just different. It's different. It's just different cocktails, different, you know, different amounts of different things. 
Um, it, these are uh, at some level. These are always going to be uh, bad, 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 bad answers because there's you know I'm both thinking about too much and not enough all the time. I think. Yeah, and you know, and I think you know, I think like humor is also so interesting because it's so changing, it's so dynamic, and you know, people are changing, contexts are changing. But I still think that there are some jokes which, in that sense, are considered to be universal or timeless, right? I think it's because maybe they've been repeated for so long, or, you know, like, I think, you know, despite where you come from, where you are, like, it's just, it just somehow strikes a chord with everybody, right? Like, I think one of the most classic jokes that, that I've heard of is why did the chicken cross the road? And sure. the is to get to the other side, like, there is nothing remotely hilarious about it, but but it's just famous. It's funny. And, you know, I think, um, oh, yeah, in fact, I think I was speaking to another friend and uh, um, and she told me that, you know, there's actually a darker version, which is that the chicken apparently got run over by a truck. So the other side is death. And I was like, oh, OK, I, I didn't. I didn't. There's, a yeah. there's a million answers. There's a million. It's just like the, you know, a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. It's a form of a joke that does not. There are either infinite answers or none or whatever. There's no there's just it's a thing to play on. And um, this is another thing that Mary Douglas, that anthropologist had said, she said, a joke is a play upon form. A joke is a play upon form. And um, it's not a simple, it's not a simple sentence. But with a joke like that, there's something we can already see. Why did the chicken cross the road? If, if the answer is to get to the other side and there's something funny about that, it's because we're, we know what a joke is and it's supposed to be. And then this joke just isn't. So you're playing on the form of a joke and in knowing that you're good. I mean, there's an amazing joke that Bo Burnham has in one of his specials, you know, and was, he was young, really young when he did this. And in the special, it's on Netflix, but in the special when he's doing it on stage, he goes, hey, um, has anybody heard that joke about video editors? And then on Netflix, the special just cuts, just like an abrupt cut. It's incredible. I remember, I, I just remember being like, it's the, one of the best thing, cause it's a play upon the entire form of, you know, this idea, this special, this, this live thing, we're just there and we're watching it. And then for this moment, we're smashed all the way back out of it. And we remember we're on our couch watching this thing being like, he just made a joke about the whole thing that's happening. That can be great. And, and jokes that are like totally absurd and that are nonsense are, are the same kind of thing. I, I've, I started finding those really funny when I was really young, which I think probably should have been an alarm for my parents to do something drastic, you know, to call in the shrinks, to send me to Catholic school or something. When it was like, you know, I remember the, you know, the two penguins sitting in a bathtub and one of them says, pass the soap. And the other one's like, what do I look like? A typewriter? Just, I was dying. As a kid, I'm dying. And I would tell that to other kids. And if they didn't laugh, I was like, I don't know if our friendship is ever going to be really deep. I didn't say that out loud, but there's the thought that's like, okay, okay, we're not on the same page. We're not totally on the, we're not totally on the same page, which is fine. But that's, you know, you get it's the things that you find the funniest. And you're saying, you know, if I found this dark joke, who do I share it with? The people that you feel like you can share it with you know, that's a measure of real closeness or people that you might share it with that you didn't think that you could and you get that response, you're immediately going to feel like, okay, like this person. Um, and that's, and, 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 you know, just to, 
make an academic point, I think that's also why it's important studying something like comedy. And I think this could apply to a lot of things. It is important to, to do the participation, to do the participant observation, essentially in that order, so that you can have real conversations because um, comedians are messed up and, and have a hard time, I think, trusting like civilians, you know what I mean? In terms of really opening up and talking. It's like, you really, this isn't how your brain's spinning all the time. I don't really know. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think um, along those lines, I think humor is also, even if you look at it historically, right, it's been so powerful to forming these in-group and out-group dynamics. You know, you have forms of high and elite humor, and then you have lower forms of humor, right? And then, you yeah. know, I think, yeah, you know, I think in that sense, it really distinguishes like the different types of people you have, you know, like whether that's the core people and or like the everyday, like commoners, right, in that sense. Along those lines, right, I'm pretty sure that you've heard of this whole category called dad jokes, you know, that basically is, you know, someone says hi yeah. and they reply with, hey, I'm dad. Or like the whole idea of puns, right? Like it's something so simple, but it just makes you laugh, right? See, so, yeah, I think, you know, to sort of go back to the simplicity of such jokes, you know, uh, you know, to like touch back on, on the different, um, you know, reasons as to why we laugh at jokes. I just like to know a little bit as to like what really goes on when we hear a pun, right? Like, what is it about it that makes us laugh? I mean, I often use that as an example when I think about this, and this, um, this may be too simple, but that incongruity theory, a pun is incongruity at essentially the smallest level that we have, not even at the level of a word, probably at the level of a phoneme. We have, you know, what's the best time to go to the doctor? 2.30, ha-ha. Tooth hurty, great. It's just the pivot, the incongruity is just with the way that one sound could be turned into two different scripts, could mean two different things at the same time. And oh God, there's another Mary Douglas line. She really, she was, she studied joking cultures in Africa and around the around the world, I think. Um, uh, and really, and really kind of started saying some of the great, the great lines that's like, well, I don't need to say them again, you said them. So we were talking about how, how, you know, there's this sense of arbitrariness that comes from, from questioning what it is we're questioning. Mm -hmm. She said a joke makes you recognize that something is arbitrary, right? In this case, sounds are arbitrary. They could mean this, they could mean that. It's mm -hmm. arbitrary. We just assigned a meaning. We assigned a meaning and it could go another way. She it makes you realize that things are arbitrary, mm -hmm. but it is, she goes, it's frivolous in that it offers no real alternative. Yeah. So yes, you recognize that things are totally like, totally arbitrary, but it's not like, ah, now we've entered the singularity or whatever, like now enlightenment and now I see the whole, like the matrix or whatever. No, you come, you smash right back down to earth and you're like, well, I still got to use those same words. But for a moment you had that experience of, I think of it as ecstasy, like in the, you know, lowercase e, but of, uh, you know, the word really means to be out of state. So you, you just step back for a second from everything. Oh shit, words can mean different. They're just, you know, and then you, then you start going up to higher and higher and higher levels, say, or maybe not even levels, but more and more complex kinds of incongruity that um, make you recognize that certain patterns of meaning are arbitrary 
and then offer no alternative and bring you back to where you were. And maybe you can bring something back from that trip. You know, maybe you bring back some knowledge and you like somehow incorporate it into your life without just falling apart, being like, oh no, everything is meaningless. Uh, which is generally a comedian's attitude about a lot of things. A dad joke, a dad joke, I think actually sort of functions on the level of those, those jokes about jokes that we were talking about, where they're so bad, like they're deliberately awful. And the worse they are, the better they are. That's a, that's a play on form. That's like, okay, we all know what jokes are supposed to be. We all get it. We, we literally say they're funny because they're not funny, which almost doesn't, it, it logically isn't, is nonsense. They're, they can't be funny because they're not funny. They're funny. They're funny because we know kind of what to expect from a joke. And then we're just not giving it to you. We're giving you something so, you want to be surprised? Nope. You want something clever? No, not really. Um, that, you know, I could say some like, you know, wild hypotheses about why dads, why dads are the ones that gravitate towards that kind of thing. But um, I do think that it, it plays by a lot of the same rule. I mean, it plays by all of the same rules in terms of things snapping into alignment for those dads and everyone that likes them just going, yeah, this, feel, this feels right. That makes sense. This level of total stupidity makes sense. Yeah, I'll say it. I'll say my random hypothesis. It's that for dads, men, we're not very useful for most things for a long time. We, we kind of like did it. If you had a kid, like just tech, and I, as a sociologist, you, a hardline sociologist will say essentially nothing is not socially constructed. But, you know, a dad has a kid that's been happening for a long time like pre-people there's been dads having kids and then generally after that being like well um now you have jobs and then you retire and you go fishing for whatever but in before they just people they died and so i think just the sheer level of arbitrariness of existence for a dad could resonate just could resonate a little quicker when they're making a joke that's like, yeah, it's funny because it's not funny. It's meaningful because everything is meaningless, you know? Mm -hmm. But I still love my kids, but I still find that joke funny. And if they do, then I'll remain connected to them and I'll, you know? Uh, so those are, those are my thoughts. Uh, I mean, you've pretty much said it, right? You know, it's, it's so bad that it's good, you know? It's, uh, it sort of goes full circle in, in, in that sense. I'd sort of like to move on a bit to talking about the different forms of jokes, right? Like, you know, like take memes, right? Like they're so universal, almost timeless. There are some really famous templates. There's the Drake meme. And then uh, there's, there's one with, um, I don't remember, like there are so many of them. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that if you've looked at stand-up comedy, right? Like you've looked at, at like comedians, you know, like different parts of the world and all of that, you know, especially looking at the Netflix special as well. And I'm pretty sure that even, you know, right, that, you know, it's not just the content of the joke, but delivery is just so important. And, you know, I think in that sense, right, like for me, like being, you know, um, a non-comedian or a lay person, right? Like if I find a joke funny, I will laugh, like while thinking about it, really struggling to say it, keep laughing. And I finally say the joke. And then by the time I've said it, the other person is like, you've laughed so much <laughs> now that like you've like, done the laughing for both of us. <laughs> so yeah. 
yeah so i just like to know a bit as to how exactly delivery of the joke really plays in and you know and is a part of the joke itself um in that sense especially when you're looking at stand up sure of course it's it's just a form of communication and this is what makes it so interesting for me to study really really not because of stand up just as itself you know i'm not studying <clears throat> you know uh how to purify water because that's an end in itself and we need to figure out ways to solve thirst around the world. No, I'm studying comedy because it's a proxy for other things. And, and the way that comedy works is just, it's very vernacular. Um, it's changed. Stand-up has changed. Uh, Lenny Bruce is uh, kind of generation defining. One of the people that we say kind of codified stand-up as what it is now from the old vaudeville kind of big uh, character -y kinds of things. He said before, uh, before a guy used to come on stage and say, this is my act. Now a comedian comes on stage and people think he's telling the truth. So the fourth wall is gone. It's not. I mean, there's still a person on stage doing a thing. They could be telling you 100% the truth. They could be fully lying. They could be totally themselves. They could be anywhere in between. We don't know, but when we process stand-up, essentially always we're kind of taking it as the person themselves, which is part of the reason a lot of comedians get in a ton of trouble. Um, but in that way, stand-up is just like speaking. There's nothing different. Yes, when your tone of voice, the way that you say things, if you talk really fast, you're implying all kinds of meanings to a person that you're talking to, and then, you take that same way of talking and you take it to another country, to another age group, to whatever. And all those same things are going to have different, they're going to have different, you know, I, I like kind of mumble talking in English. Like I talk sort of fast and then not really. And then it's okay if I'm in New York, maybe people are like, all right, it sounds fine. And then maybe I'm spending time in Mississippi. People are like, um, I need you to slow the fuck down. <laughs> I just mean, you know, like, why are you racing through everything? We're fine, you know. Um, you find that true in different forms of comedy, I think, as well. And some of that comes from just the histories of performance in every place, what they're used to and what stand-up's grown out of. Um, I find, like, French stand-up often to be bigger, like, more performative, more of a you know, less of the like really soft-spoken, dry, kind of that sort of thing. And it really varies. And so that's, you know, if you took that and you take it to the U.S., well, yeah, you might have some differences in how that comes across. But it's really basically the same as saying like, yeah, you know, the way that you tell a story to a single person or to your family at dinner or, or, or is has the same kind of impacts and is, and is affected by all the same kind of variables. Definitely, right. And yeah, and I think, you know, to sort of go a little bit more into the theory, as you've mentioned earlier, like, and especially looking at, at the publication, like you've mentioned a couple of famous names, you've mentioned um, the window to the unconscious, you've mentioned um, dramaturgy, which is, you know, this theory sort of put forth by Irving Goffman. Um, then you mentioned Lenny Bruce Garfinkel, so yeah, so I think, you know, sort of looking at all of these theories and what they've said on humor and and the main sort of point, right, that you've made in the publication around the double self and the double conscious, 
I'd just like to know a little bit about what this double self is and how exactly it comes into play when we listen to a joke or when we deliver a joke. Yeah, well, I like how you have Lenny Bruce mixed in there with the with the classic sociological names. It's it's true. I really think that there was somebody who actually wrote this. It's a very helpful article just about uh, this sort of lit review of a lot of humor theories. And at the end, he kind of goes, well, there's basically, you know, we should take the study of humor really seriously, basically, because because uh, stand up does exactly what sociology does like what C. Wright Mills was saying about seeing the ordinary and the extraordinary and the extraordinary and the ordinary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and all these other things. He's like, it's really doing the same thing. It, it's sociology with like slightly different, you know what I mean? With smaller words and they, you know, less, uh, I don't know. Um, so, um, right, but you're, you're <laughs> the double consciousness, yeah, that's something I think about constantly. Um, that was Du Bois's idea. And again, very oversimplified, but that how a person would experience the world through their own perspective, of course, subjectively. But they're also so aware of how somebody else is looking at them, objectifying them, that they then see themselves also from that objectifying perspective and are forced to see the world doubly. And he goes, well, look, ideally, ideally, there's this possibility for second sight, you know, that, that you would unify those together. And then the same way that you have two eyes, so you see in three dimensions, you know, that you would get more, you would somehow be able to unify that. But most of the time it just ends up, or basically all the time, it's oppressive. It, it is an enormous mental strain. Um, and he wrote about that in the context of white racism towards African-Americans. Later, he went to a ghetto in Poland. He went to the Warsaw Ghetto. And this is not exactly his words, but he went, holy shit. He goes, what I've been seeing as these totally separate things, these ideas of anti-Semitism and white racism towards black people, I've, saw, I've seen them as categorically separate and with different fundaments. Is, you know, there's, there's way more similar than different in this. This sense of the ways in which people are marginalized and how that can allow us, if we see those as more similar than different, to understand this kind of universal suffering or universal oppression or universal objectification that forces people into these double conscious states of being. Um, and that was something that I'd noticed. You talked about the, the, you know, international Netflix specials. They had this Comedians Around the World series that had 47 specials around the world. And I think I might have been the only person in the world to watch all of them. What becomes glaringly clear is that this idea of double, of, of seeing things in two ways, of, of yourself as a subject, but also seeing yourself from this from the perspective of the person who, who marginalizes you or from, or even if it's imaginary, just seeing yourself as an object from the outside. It's there in so many different forms. I think that the term race is essentially useless because it doesn't, uh, it's too unclear to be helpful, but in a ethno-linguistic sense, in a national sense, in a gendered sense, by age, by income, all of these things can be sources of double consciousness. 
And I think that it's amazing that Du Bois, we don't normally think of Du Bois' second uh, double consciousness as, as, as reflecting that, but it's amazing that really towards the end of his life, he went, yeah, yeah, there's, 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 a uni there's a similarity in marginalization that should be, um, that we should think about. What, what Zimmel talked about is the stranger. You know, there's so many ways of being the stranger. And, um, and, I've, and I've started to think about comedians as being this kind of professionalized stranger. They take their strangers and they go, okay, well, this is what I'm gonna, this is what I'm gonna be. Um, I do think that, that that sense of double consciousness that is for sure not unique to comedians, not at all, of course not. So many people are like, yeah, that's the way I feel, of course. Um, but that it's essentially always true of comics. And um, there's this line that uh, I know I'm just quoting. I don't have, it's not that I'm very well read. It's just that there's certain quotes that, that stick in my head and I go, good, that says everything I need to say. <laughs> Let me just remember that one and stick to that forever. Um, Franz Fanon, who was a psych, psych, uh, psychoanalyst, who was uh, Martinican French, um, I believe. And he wrote, um, he, was, uh, he was living in Algeria under the French colonization. He said, um, he said, he talked about triple consciousness, which is really very similar, to, really similar to this idea of double consciousness. I don't think he really expanded on it too much, but he goes, um, I, I appealed to the other uh, so that his liberating gaze he goes, um, gliding over my body, suddenly smooth the rough edges. Poetic, great. Uh, would give me back the lightness of being I thought I had lost and taking me out of the world, put me back in the world. So, okay, maybe I just want to hear what I want to hear. But what I get from that is, it is this huge mental strain to, to, both try and just see the world and then to be like, ah, how are other people seeing me? How is whatever it, you know? And in the worst cases, it's not like, how is everybody seeing me social anxiety? It's like, I know how the world is seeing me. For example, in the US, I know how I'm being seen as a young black man on the street, you know, walking by myself. I am aware of the structural dangers. And I have to think about that. That's a huge strength. But if for a moment I could just let myself be fully objectified, forget my own subjective experience, forget it. Let's just do, let's just do the, let me just look from the, uh, you know, the objectifier, that is enormously liberating or can be. It's liberating gaze. Takes you out of the world for a second. You're not in it. You're just a thing looking at yourself down there, the object. You're just looking at that. It takes you out of the world and then kind of puts you back in it in a place where maybe it's like, you know, you feel a little more able to keep to keep going but um i think that comedians in that feeling of being you know marginalized in whatever ways these comedians that just felt like they didn't fit always it's always a story of not fitting you watch these netflix specials you talk to comedians it's always like well, what you didn't fit in how you didn't fit in for what reason you were you know you made you know okay you're you were queer and this happened you didn't you know you had this and this that religious thing you didn't believe in your catholic school and that happened and what, what, any number of things and you get on stage on stage you're an object i mean on stage every you know perfectly well what how you're being seen from the outside 
everyone's looking at you to be think there's there's it's very simple all of these like you know bouncing around different kinds of gazes they've all become like very solidified there's one gate and you're like thank god thank it's that's a relief you know at least that's a relief for one second um i hope that makes sense and that's not just you know the the uh yeah, I hope that I hope that comes out of something. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, I think in the end, right? I think it um, sort of ties back into the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that others know of us. And you know, I think when we have so many different stories, right? As you've mentioned, you know, when we look at it through this double lens and through these triple lenses, and now to just remove one lens for a second, you know, just look at it through one, it can sort of add that clarity. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm greatly paraphrasing and simplifying what you said. I'm not sure if I'm on the point, but, but like, that's sort of what I understood. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I think, um, in fact, I think this reminds me of this other one example, which is, you know, this trending song, which you must have heard of, which is Cardi B's WAP. You know, you must have heard of it. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think, like, I remember, like, we were discussing it um, in, like, one of my classes, you know, and then, uh, my professor sort of came up with this point of view of that, you know, it doesn't matter if Cardi B is singing it and she's like, you know, oh, I'm powerful because like I'm the one who's doing it. Because if you look at the episteme of thought, right, if you look at prostitution, if you look at, you know, the way that like women have been seen for so long, they have sort of, you know, been objectified in this way. So now it doesn't matter if you are doing the objectification or if somebody else is doing it for you. Objectification is objectification. So no matter how much you try to step out of the structure, like you're still a part of the structure. Um, so yeah, I've just sort of, so yeah, yeah it's, it's just in something I was thinking about along those lines. So, you know, no, yeah, I think that, I mean, I think those are really important conversations to have. I, I hate that phrase. I, I don't know what else to say. It's like, it's like something very important to engage with critically because and, and a lot of that can't happen from an armchair. It can't just happen from this academic standpoint of like, well, look, you know, look at what this means and this follows the same form. It's like actually talking to people and this gets really hard because how many people and how are you gonna do it? But to talk to people and go, well, do you feel empowered in what ways and how does that manifest in your life? And for some people it is true, it is gonna be true. Overall for something like that, then I think and this is true with jokes also. Sometimes you just have to think, like, does it do more harm than good? That's kind of the question. And we got to break out of the sense of like, oh, well, that's a little harmful in this way. So nix the whole thing. Well, no. I mean, that was some people's vaccine issues. It's like, well, six out of 10 million people, uh, you know, this happens to them. It's like, yeah, but we got to do it, you know. Um, Sometimes I had questions about this, like this show that came out about Orthodox Jews called Unorthodox. It was a book, and but then as a TV show, it was it was short. And um, and I wondered, I wondered if that was the kind of thing where you know I get questions over here where people obviously there's this obvious conflation of Jews and Israel. Oh, you're Jewish, isn't that Israeli? And those are not separate. And then the idea of Orthodox Jews. There are many kinds of Orthodox Jews. There are, uh, there are several kinds of ultra-Orthodox Jews, all these things. And so to me, this very critical perspective of this, of a particular type of extremely Orthodox uh, religious people, I was like, 
I, it is important, but is it possible that that'll be, that'll turn into more general anti-Semitism? I don't know. I don't know. And it's a real story and it's important to tell, but like, that's kind of the way that I'd want to think about it. The same way that I'd want to think about WAP in the same way that I think about a lot of memes, you know, um, just like, are we doing more harm than good? You know, is it like, is a, you know, is a Holocaust joke. If it, is it, does is it triggering does it is it triggering but does it also does it also allow for more openness of thought so that we don't just shut off certain lines of thinking i don't know but you know if we get out of the black and white black and white framework uh, it does a little bad so don't do it then then we can do things and and i will say that's uh you know you when you do academic research like this you apply for you know you need to get this clearance from the uh, the irb the internal uh i want to say revenue that's not true their ethics they're an internal <laughs> how much is money it, is your study of comedians is it, internal, yeah. is it the internal yeah. review committee is that review one? review board that's what it is review i was like where's the ethics i was like ethics doesn't start with r at all um and they ask you they ask you all these questions about like whether there's potential harm to the subjects and all these ones now granted the irb was created to do research about uh like cancer and medical kinds of stuff so the the kinds of harm that they were thinking about originally when they wrote that was like is somebody going to grow a second head uh, are they going to turn into the Hulk? Like, are they going to die? Whatever. Like that was the, and now it's been, you know, you go through the same process with the social sciences and it's like, is it possible that there's going to be any harm done to somebody by asking them about this or this joke or about how they feel about something? Well, of course. I mean, any conversation can be, I don't necessarily want to say hurtful, but can be hard, can be hard to have. But you know uh if our if our line stops there you go well don't do it that that we can't no we can't have that conversation then because it might be tough and comedians are straddling that line all the time that's basically i think what they're they're trying to do if they're trying to think about act if they actually have an agenda which which is a whole other separate question is a comic actually trying to accomplish anything like are they trying to push are they trying to make people think or do or act in a way or are they just just because it's funny and that's a big divide i think amongst comics everywhere and then also regionally whatever but for sure yeah and you know i think um of course when you're thinking about these questions as an academic it's very different from you know thinking about it as an ordinary person because you're applying a lot of these frameworks and all of that you're engaging with a lot of other thoughts too right and you know i think along those lines i just like to sort of wrap up with the final question which is that you know of course like in the social sciences it's very different from the natural sciences because you know we're not studying molecules we're studying human beings and we are human beings ourselves uh, so, yeah, I'd just like to know if you have ever felt that your experiences or background or identity has ever influenced the course of your research, either in terms of your access to resources, or your form of narration, or any such um, similar factor like that. Uh, well, of course. I mean, a love of, love of comedy turns into interest in thinking about what it is and what it does, and that thought about how humor connects to people, again, my, my grandfather being somebody that was a, a humorous guy and who, who wrote these cartoons that, that millions of people saw, it, it, you understood the power of humor, but then that grew into, okay, what else can we, 
what else is going on here? And you talk about memes, like why are memes the language of modernity? Why is every, why is that most of viral content? Why is it humor? Why is it humor that makes it through? And in terms of the academic side, I don't believe that, you know, that the academic work and thinking about something as a civilian, layperson, normal human, I don't think that those should be separate because then what's the point? For a neuroscientist, for a chemist, for somebody developing a drug that nobody needs to know how it works, but it's helpful to get, that's a different thing. For a social scientist that's trying to discover something, if it doesn't come out into the world, what the point, I don't really know what the point has been. Um, and I think that's, that's just, that's probably informed by a long lineage of just weird people in my family doing weird stuff and not having this very narrow framework about humor specifically. I guess the last thing I would say is that there's this, uh, E.B. White, uh, goddamn, just quoting, just quoting, you know, but it's, this is a, yeah, this is what I said before the start. And I was like, how many, how many people can I quote? Um, the writer E.B. White, he, uh, he said, dissecting a, jo a joke is like dissecting a frog. It's like nobody's very interested and the frog dies in the end. And I go, well, a lot of people have been dissecting frogs for a long time. We even do it in school, I think, in like schools in those. But also one of the, there was like some major discovery that came from dissecting frogs, like about how the body has like you know, electro, there's like electronic, fuck, this is going to make us sound like robots. That's not what I mean. This is a real thing, like that you're, you know, you can shock a person and it, you know, electricity travels through the body. That's what I mean. Electricity travels through the body. There's a guy named uh, Galvin, the, the word galvanized, that things can be galvanized, can be like electrified. And like, comes from this guy, Galvino, who got that from dissecting a frog. So take that, E.B. White. There's a point in dissecting humor, but... You can't just leave a dead frog on the table and go like, that was fun. You have to take that out and try and do something with it. That, I think, probably is influenced by every lesson that maybe our generation was taught as kids. of like, do what you, just find, find a thing that you like and then do good in the world. It's like, I don't know how, but... This obsession with comedy, I think, has led to a place where I go, okay, well, I can still engage with comedy, but always, always keep, you know, most of your brain, some of your brain on this idea of like, well, what, what is, what is any of this discovery actually going to be useful to? Um, hopefully to people not hating each other quite so much. Maybe that's it. No. Hopefully to people liking more Holocaust jokes. Uh, no, that's not it. No, forget it. You'll fix it in the editing. You'll add a really smart thing that I said, and then there we are. I hope so. I haven't, uh, my editing skills are not uh, that advanced, but let's see. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You just leave the truth. The truth, <laughs> the truth shall set uh, me in my place where I belong. Sure. But yeah, I mean, this was a really fun episode. It was fun. You know, I think all those people who say, right, it's not fun when you dissect a joke. Like, I think it is, like, I won't say it's not, okay, it's not funny when you dissect a joke, but to understand what goes on behind it, I think is pretty remarkable. So 
I I find that fun. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that you know that better than most people. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. Everybody does. I mean, it's it's like you never get the same reaction. You never have the same just like the timing. The you know, it's like communication. If you have to explain what you just said to somebody in any way, you're something different is happening. But something could still be funny, but in a different way. Like explaining, you know, absurd jokes. People can laugh at that just after the fact, and it's weird. Or or you learn something, or you learn something about a person. You always like, why did you find that? I, this, this is the last story I'll, 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 I'll say. I don't know if this is um, as interesting to anybody else as it is to me, but I, I was in China and, um, and there was a woman, a uh, Chinese-Japanese friend of mine. She said, um, I was supposed to go on this date with, uh, with an American guy. And he said, uh, yeah, let's, let's go out. Uh, we'll go for a drink, but let's, I'll, I'll, meet you, uh, I'll meet you for sushi at Family Mart first. Family Mart is basically like a 7-Eleven, like a side of the road, like an awful, you know, it saves your life at four in the morning if you've been drinking too much, but it's terrible. And they have sushi, like sushi from a gas station. You know, it's like, don't touch that, okay? And she's like, what is wrong with this guy? And I'm like, no, no, Raven. I was like, no, no, it's a joke. Because like, why would anyone do that? And she's like, what are you talking about? Why is that a joke? Why is that fun? It's, well, because you would never do it. It's funny because you technically could. You never would. Just it's, it's a fun, really getting into why, very hard. But just the idea that she was like, that's not a joke. It couldn't be. And she didn't go on a date with this guy. I was like, no, no, it was a joke. <laughs> like, you should at least meet or whatever. She's like, no, it's too weird. Who says things like that? It's <laughs> gross. <laughs> so it's, you know, sometimes dissecting it was important or at least knowing the main thing, first thing, just knowing, okay, is this a joke or not? And am I willing to let something be one or the other? Am I willing to engage the possibility that something might not be straightforward speech? Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I mean, human beings are fun and interesting and complicated at the same time. We sure are. I have actually eaten the sushi from that family mark. That's how complicated we are. <laughs> I, I have actually done it, so maybe it's not a joke, but I wouldn't, on a first date, I don't think I'm good. But we are complex people, yeah. sometimes with food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um... I don't know, like one of um, my favorite jokes is, this is a really bad one, which you must have heard, but it's yeah. a very good uh, icebreaker joke, which is how much does a polar bear weigh and then the answer is enough to break the ice. So like, hey. um, <laughs> yeah, breaking the ice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so. There's, um, yeah, there's jokes, there's jokes for all, there's, there's jokes for all seasons, you know, mm-hmm. and they accomplish very different things. But, I, but again, it's just like, this is communication at its highest, at its highest level. That is most like really doing, it's doing so much work. Mm-hmm. You tell somebody, Hey, the tree over there is green. Cool. Great piece of info. Thanks for telling me. Yeah. You make it a joke. There's so much information that's been compressed into that socially. Like, I think that's what the show Silicon Valley is about, right? The guy, like, comes up with new compression software that's, like, it compresses all the files, but even better, and this is going to, like, save 
science or whatever the world um and humor is that it packs so much meaning into so little of a space mm -hmm. so telling jokes to people you're getting so much across that you don't even know i mean a lot of it's happening subconsciously a lot of it's happening you know at that level of all those things snapping into alignment whatever or even at the level of a joke about a joke where you're kind of saying like, hey, things could be really arbitrary and meaningless. That's a huge statement. That's a very meaningful, it's maybe the most meaningful statement you could ever make to say like, this is meaningless or everything is meaningless. That's a, that's a hugely meaningful statement. And you can do that in a, in a single joke. Like mm -hmm. that's a lot of info. That's a yeah. lot of info. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, anyways, that, that's about it from my end. So I'm going right. to wrap up. But it was a pleasure talking to you today, Adam. So thank you so much for taking out the time. Yeah. Me. Thanks um, for talking. Great questions. Yeah. Sorry for bloviating and pontificating and uh, saying no, 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 people. It was super fun. All right. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe or follow. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH podcast for further updates.